0: Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu.
1: My name is Julian Schimper. I'm the co-founder of the Impromoto Group. Uh, Personally, I work with the politicians who either want to be elected or stay elected. I also work with Trial lawyers in the United States, in the UK, and Canada. Today, we are here at IWP and grateful to be here. Uh, I'm going to be introducing Dr. L- John Lynchowski. He's the founder and president of the Institute of World Politics. He also served as the director of the European and Soviet Affairs at the National Security Council. Uh, he was a special advisor to the State Department in the Reagan administration. On a personal note, in working with IWP, I have come to be very impressed with Dr. Linchowski for his knowledge, uh, his scholarship. Generosity of spirit. On behalf of the Imprimatur Group, the Victims of Communism, the Claremont Institute, and the Venda Museum, Dr. John Lachewski.
2: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, We are an independent graduate school of international affairs and national security. We have uh, five master's degree programs. We have the nation's first uh, doctoral program in national security. Uh, our MA programs are in international affairs, national security, strategy, and intelligence. Uh, uh, we have 18 graduate certificate programs. And basically, we have a four-part mission. We want to have our students see the world the way it really is, rather than the way they wish it to be. Uh, We want them to learn uh, all of the different instruments of national power, which we call the different arts of statecraft, each of which we understand to be an instrument in a larger orchestra, and we want our students not only to know how to play their instrument, but also how it integrates in the larger orchestra. Uh, We also study American founding principles, because I think it's important for people who are involved in uh, In diplomacy, intelligence, military affairs, and other aspects of international affairs to understand the country which they are representing or defending, and we also and because we teach our students how to use power, we uh, want them to use it responsibly, ethically, and prudently and hence we study moral philosophy and applied ethics. Uh, I would like to thank our partners in this uh, Uh, in this enterprise, the Claremont Institute, uh, the Imprimatur Group, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and the Venda Museum of the Cold War in Los Angeles. And I just would like to say we are a 501 tax-exempt academic institution that is supported by tuition and private donations. So uh, I wish all of our participants Good fortune today, and I don't turn it back to I'll turn it back to Julianne. Thank you so much.
1: I'd like to introduce our debaters. On my right, we have Mr. Bashkar Sankara. He's the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine, as well as the publisher of Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, and the UK-based Tribune. He's the author of The Socialist Manifesto: The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Bashkar Sankara. On his left we have Eric Blanc, he's the author of the book Red State Revolt, The Teacher Strike Wave, and Working Class Politics. He's a former high school teacher and currently a doctoral student at NYU. Uh, Eric has been a Jacobin Magazine on the ground correspondent for the teacher strikes. He's a member of the Democratic, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and he writes for The Nation and The Guardian. Mayor Khodakowicz has authored, co-authored, edited, and co-edited over 15 scholarly monographs and documentary collections. His latest include Intermarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and On the Right and Left, The Textbook of Intellectual History of Modern Ideologies. At IWP, Dr. Hodakowitz teaches courses on Contemporary Politics and Diplomacy, Geography and Strategy, Mass Murder Prevention in Failed and Failing States, and Russian Politics and Foreign Policy. And our final debater this morning is Mr. Ron Rayosh. He is Professor Emeritus of History at City University of New York, Adjunct Fellow at the Hudson Institute, and an opinion columnist for the Daily Beast. He is author and co-author of over 20 books, including The Rosenberg File and a memoir, Commies, A Journey Through the Old Left, The New Left, and The Leftover Left. His latest article, Paul Robeson, The Price of Self-Delusion, appears in the current issue of of The American Interest. And our moderator for today, Co-founder of Info is Michael Walsh. Michael is the author of The Devil's Pleasure Palace and Rules for Radical Conservatives. He has written over 16 books. Uh, Mr. Walsh.
3: Thank you very much, and welcome to all the debaters, and welcome to all of you here, and to everyone watching uh, on uh, YouTube and being live streamed by Fox Nation. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Briefly, I will state the proposition. Uh, We will ask each of our speakers to uh, have an opening statement of four minutes, a hard stop at four minutes. And it will be responded to and countered and countered again. The first proposition is for this debate today, resolved that socialism slash communism remains a viable economic, social, and political system and just not, uh, just has not yet been properly implemented. We'll start with Mr. Boshkar
4: Sunkara. Let's just start with Eric Blanc. Start with Eric Blanc. Eric, yes. please. Socialism remains viable because democracy remains viable. Uh, the essence of socialism means the expansion of democracy into the industrial economic sphere. Uh, Under capitalism, your average workplace is an authoritarian regime. You walk into the door, you lose your basic freedoms. Uh, Whatever political democracy we have is large part undermined also by this uh, inordinate power of big business over our political process. So what we as socialists believe is that challenging the current economic dictatorship of big business by placing workplaces and the commanding heights of the economy under public and democratic control is both possible and necessary. The failures of the Stalinist regimes in the Soviet Union and beyond do not disprove socialism. Uh, If you expected us to defend the gulag or one-party states or things of that sort, you clearly don't understand what democratic socialism is or the tradition that we come from. Uh, We fought against Stalin. We were actually, in fact, uh, some of the first victims of Stalinism. So there's no need for us to defend uh, all of the things that happened there. Uh, The reasons that socialism went wrong in the Soviet Union and beyond were largely contingent and contextual factors that wouldn't be replicated necessarily in an advanced industrial country like the United States. Every single, uh, almost every single country that has so far overthrown capitalism has taken place in countries that have been ravaged by war. Primarily peasant, non-industrialized countries with low levels of literacy and basically the types of conditions uh, that would be needed for a flourishing social democracy. Uh, we're not present. So it's not surprising that the Soviet Union ended up replicating uh, many of the problems that capitalist industrialized countries also faced such as corruption, authoritarianism, economic inefficiency. There's no reason to think though, that that would be replicated in the United States. But you don't need to look to Russia or to the distant socialist future uh, to see why socialism remains viable. Socialist parties even under capitalism have done a better job of improving living standards and of uh, expanding freedom than capitalist defenders. Yeah, just look at compare the United States to Western European countries in which socialist parties and labor movements radically transformed many of the incentives and structures of society. Um, they were able to win decommodification of housing, health care, education, and if we want to look at the type of society that approximates the goal of democratic socialists, although not fully reaching that, you could look at Sweden in the 1970s, um, and you can compare the United States to even Sweden today, despite the fact that many of the gains in Sweden and other Nordic countries have been rolled back because they did not go all the way in ending the economic dictatorship of big business. Nevertheless, by the indicators are clear of the vast improvements that were made under socialist parties. Uh, just take the question of life expectancy in the US has dropped for three years in a row, in large part due to the inefficiencies and irrationalities of our healthcare, private healthcare system. You have 45,000 people die yearly, according to the Harvard. School of Medicine from lack of health insurance, and our infant mortality rate is more than double most other industrialized nations. The building off of social democracy to move to a real democratic socialism is not just uh, viable, but it's actually urgently necessary. Because of the uh, short-termism of capitalism, the current system we're living under is leading humanity to climate catastrophe. And so I think it's ultimately the most damning indictment of the current system that our opponents here will be defending that, in fact, uh, the ability for humanity, time? Do you have 30 seconds? 30 seconds. Yes. Uh, climate scientists are agreed that due to the misuse of our resources currently, we have current 12 years uh, for a radical transformation of our priorities. There's no reason to think that capitalists. Uh, class or market incentives on its own is going to be able to make that, tr- tr- uh, that transition. Only Socialists and Socialist parties are going to be able to fight for a Green New Deal and prevent climate catastrophe and save humanity. So I think that's in some ways our strongest case for the viability of Socialism. Thank
3: you very much. Uh, opening negative will be Mr. Ron Rednich.
4: Yes. Uh, first
5: of all, I think that uh, Socialism in all of its forms has failed, including the attempts of the anti-Stalinist, social democratic parties of Europe to make substantive changes for the better. Uh, As Mr. Sankara says in his book, uh, we disagree on why this happened, look at the experience of the Mitterrand government in France tried to move far to the left and had to backtrack because the economy was collapsing. Look at the state of uh, German social democrats in what was West Germany and Germany today. Their programs too failed because They couldn't have what they advocate work because it too was leading to a collapsed economy. So the attempts of democratic socialists to move towards more socialism and away from social democracy has also failed. My second point, the thing, and I'm sorry to see so many of the new generation replicating the mistakes we made 40, 50 years ago. And we said the same things uh, as Mr. Blanc said today. We can create a democratic socialism, not a Stalinist socialism. We can change things for the better. We have the same arguments. This is not new. It's just that they're revived again. Uh, And we learned the hard way that you can't legislate or institutionalize by an economic social system uh, to produce fraternity and solidarity among human beings. As soon as you do that, The whole thing falls apart because you can't mold human beings and all their differences into a different kind of more just society. Now I do not challenge the inequities that exist in today's capitalist society. Uh, I think climate change is a real problem that is not being addressed and should be addressed. We probably agree on all the ills that exist and face us today. The answer to that is not something called socialism. My second point really is that there is no separate system or social order called socialism that one has to make a transition to. What I think my uh, antagonists don't understand, and here I'm using the work of the historian Martin J. Sklar, that capitalism and socialism, that all industrialized economies have a little bit of capitalism and socialism, they grow together they are antagonists together, and they complement each other at the same time. There is no such separate system, and in fact, all the great things the Socialists and Social Democrats called for before World War I have been achieved in what most people refer to our kind of society. Public schools, uh, economic reform, better conditions for the working class, uh, advances that help everyone, not just the upper class and the 1%. This has been achieved in our society in the United States today. And in that regard, what we exist in the United States today, insofar as we look at the United States today, and true, you can argue that there are retrogressions made, and the capitalist sector of socialist capitalist mix is gaining more power and endangering some of the reforms that have been made. You can make that argument if you want. They all exist in today's society. So if you want to say, look what socialism will accomplish, I argue that the United States, as the most advanced industrial economy, has already accomplished all these things.
3: Good. Uh, Our next speaker is Mr. Bashkar Sunkara.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I will thank my opponent for listing some of the achievements of socialists uh, fighting within capitalist countries. And these are achievements that, of course, were foisted upon The capitalist class, voicing upon political elites. So, one way to understand the heights of of social democracy is to focus on the Swedish case. Because we'll talk then about a country that came very close to our vision of socialism and that has seen many of its gains rolled back by capitalist power. Sweden was a a country that was among the most oligarchical and backward countries in all of Europe. It was rivaled only to to Russia and its repression and how reactionary its its, uh, political form was. And this country was transformed over the course of a century by conscious uh, Marxists within a social democratic party, a party that ascribed to the Marxism of the Second International. Over the course of 20, 30 years, they won universal suffrage through a political revolution uh, then at that point, they extended the gains of democracy into the social and economic spheres. They did this, of course, by the use of sectoral bargaining, by the use of other mechanisms within the capitalist system, but fundamentally they did show by political coercion. So I think this is a key point. Our opponents would conflate all forms of political coercion with the coercion seen by Stalinist dictatorships. But within Western Europe, socialists were able to put constraints on the activities of private capitalists to do what they will in the market, and through these constraints, we've been able to give more autonomy and freedom to ordinary people. So we should reject this Hayekian uh, uh, separation that, that would say that socialists advocate for equality, capitalists advocate for freedom. The socialist question is freedom for whom? So, for instance, if you own a piece of private enterprise, if you own a firm, and you invested sweat and labor and all sorts of other risks into setting up this firm, and you enter into a free agreement, uh, supposedly with your employees, and that agreement says your employees have to work 10, 11 hours a day, then a Bernie Sanders figure, a Jeremy Corbyn-like figure, uh, uh, pushes through legislation that says there is a maximum restriction on the workday, The work week is now 35 hours. That is an imposition on your freedom as a capitalist. That's an imposition on what you could do to your private property. But in the essence what it does, it expands the sphere of freedom for those ordinary working people. They now have three, four hours a day to figure out what to do with their their lives. They now have more autonomy and freedom for the production process. This is the logic of democratic socialism. It's a logic that does imply coercion. It does imply uh, a level of, of, of power struggle, but consistently we've seen that the parties espousing these sorts of reforms and the parties that want to, in some, some cases, push forward to fully socialize production by taking away production from the private sphere of, of employees and giving it to workers and self-managed firms even if they are still competing in a market economy these are societies that have also seen the expansion of civil rights and liberties, not their erosion. These are societies that have seen parties that have participated in the peaceful transference of power. The Swedish Social Democrats ruled for 50 years, they lost election in 1976, and they got reelected in 1982. This is the history of democratic socialism, it's a history of success, it's a history of the expansion of democracy, it's a history of the expansion of freedom for ordinary working people.
3: Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Marikoda Kevitz of the Institute of World Politics.
6: Well, thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. Dr. Rados, gentlemen, nice to have you here. First, let me put this Swedish myth to rest. Uh, Sweden, like Denmark and Norway, are healthy capitalist society. But there is a parasite. It's called social democracy. It sucks capitalism blind and it attempts to murder it, it hasn't succeeded because the terror is reduced to political correctness and oppressive law. Not only labor laws, it's laws which prevent a human being for speaking the truth. In particular, if you're either a free market enthusiast, or a nationalist, or a monarchist, or a Christian. Yes, there is political correctness and there is social democratic terror. You don't have to kill people to intimidate them. Please look at America, what's happening. All compliments of comrade socialists and their liberal liberal enablers. Now, what about socialism in general? The comrades here tell us to forget the past, that they have a new theory and they are going to bring us to paradise on earth again. Well, I'm afraid... This doesn't cut it. The past is all we have to go on. Socialism remains a viable proposition only in a dreamland. Equality exists only before God. We're all different. Do I look like Michael Jordan? No. Uh, Democracy and socialist democracy are like a chair to an electric chair. So we can forget about that unless we want to fry. Socialism also entails a plan which in turn entails coercion, hence terror, ultimately. Whether it's a terror of political correctness or the terror of the gulags, concentration camps, it's a different story. Socialism, in fact, is a species of Gnosticism. It's nothing new under the sun. It's not a new theory, not anything they can invent and try to dazzle us with. It's an ancient anti-Nomian heresy where... The elect feel above the law, and they are going to dictate to us how to live. Everyone is equal except for the guru and his Politburo. And they are going to take us on Via lucis, the lightning path to happiness, to paradise on Earth. In Peru, it's called Sendero Luminoso, the lightning path. And that means mass murder, ultimately. Since all matter is evil for the Gnostics, Hence, we must confiscate private property. That is their main goal. And private property is freedom. Uh, Sometimes they like to collectivize women or do various other shenanigans, uh, because since all matter is evil, we should not propagate. Antinatalism is a species of Gnosticism, and it's, of course, now a part of the larger socialist proposition because it has to be new and improved like our aquafresh every decade. Uh, What we have before us is another exciting proposition for those who refuse to learn from history. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Dr. Horakiewicz. Let me interject now that for the next half half an hour or so, we'll have an interactive discussion among the panels that. I will guide from this seat, throwing out some possible topics and now drawing upon the opening statements of each of our distinguished debaters. Uh, I would also mention that this entire event today is being held in commemoration of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which signaled ultimately the end of communism in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. So with that as a kind of elephant in the room an example of where one branch of socialism eventually wound up. Uh, That will kind of overhang all of our current (coughs) discussion. We've thrown out a number of issues here, which I'm happy to see have been put on the table. One is uh, climate change and uh, what, if anything, should be done about it. And the ticking clock of climate change Uh, Mr. Blanc said we have 12 years of radical transformation uh, before, uh, what, the apocalypse begins? Can you amplify that, please?
4: Yeah, the scientific community internationally is actually crystal clear on what the stakes are. Uh, There's not actually a serious debate on this anymore as far as the amount of time we have to radically lower our carbon emissions. Uh, The only people who reject this are Uh, market fundamentalists who don't want to look at what the science says. So yeah, clearly for the survival of uh, large numbers of people, we're talking about millions, potentially billions of people, particularly in the global south, uh, the stakes of what capitalism is doing are really high, and in fact the question then of moving beyond a system that is based off primarily making profits for incredibly wealthy people to having uh, prioritization of both the sustainability of our planet and the needs of working people is actually absolutely urgent. It's and been. there was no response. I think it's actually quite indicative of the uh, um, defense of capitalism, that actually nobody responded in a serious way to our claim that capitalism is inherently leading humanity to a climate catastrophe. Well, that's
3: what we're here for. Uh, Ron, would you like to speak to that
4: point? Yes. Uh, first of all,
5: I think that if you look at the history of the countries that call themselves socialists, now I think the point you're neglecting is that true, they were under the control of Stalinists. They were vassal states of the old Soviet Union, the countries in Eastern Europe, for example. People in this, in America, who call themselves democratic socialists, all believed that, in fact, the environment, destruction of the environment, and not attending to things like climate change were a result of capitalism and they then argued that these socialist countries, which they believed, they were said well of course we're opposed to Stalinism, but the so-called socialist countries have solved the environment where there is no environmental crisis there at all. And then you looked at reality after the fall of communism, looked at the rivers in countries surrounding in Hungary, in Poland, the most pollution anywhere in the world were in the so-called socialist countries. And the left in this country couldn't even acknowledge that. I had a lovely mail, not email in those days it was mail, with the late folk singer Pete Seeger, one of my friends and mentors. And Pete Seeger sent me literally Communist Party USA pamphlets, and he said, you know, I'm for democracy showing that only the capitalist countries and only the United States was destructing the environment and then in the socialist countries there was no crisis at all of the environment. That's the blind spot that they believed. Now you can argue, well, I never say these countries were socialists, but people who believed in democratic socialism never even challenged those claims because they would say essentially, well, we're not totalitarians, But they're socialists because they help run the commanding heights of the economy. And I'm a socialist, too. So even their horrible form of socialism, they still are socialists. And we call them that. And they have uh, solved all the great crises uh,
3: that some attribute to capitalism. Mr. Sunkar, how could you respond to that? I, uh, on a personal note, spent uh, the years 1985 to 1991 behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Russia. And uh, from my own Uh, experience, it was highly polluted, poisonous environment, much, much worse than anything here in the West. So how do you respond to Mr. Radar? Yes,
0: I think there's no doubt that the Eastern Bloc states had terrible environmental records. Uh, Some of that I think we have to, if we're being intellectually honest, attribute to catch up and rapid industrialization. So in other words, today we might say China and India and Brazil might have worse environmental records than the United States and other already developed states. Uh, but I think there's, there's no doubt that even transitioning to a form of, of uh, centralized planning or, or whatnot, which I don't propose, um, in and of itself does not guarantee better environmental uh, outcomes. Uh, planners and state agencies might choose to prioritize rapid development uh, in the same way that a capitalist would choose to prioritize short-term profits. Uh, I would say, though, that state planning and investment was hugely important behind one of the positive legacies of the Mitterrand government, which was the execution and expansion of nuclear power in, in France, which took tremendous amounts of state, state planning and investment. So I, I think at the very least, we could say that even if we want uh, firms to, to operate, whether they be worker-owned or whether they be owned by private capitals, these firms have to be subjected to forms of regulation. This could take, in some part, a market-based uh, solution, like carbon tax or whatnot. We need to mix that with forms of planning. And I think in your vision, that's compatible. I think we could solve this problem within capitalism or within uh, a democratic socialist system. But we need forms of state intervention and planning. And people who have more extremist views, who don't believe in market failures, who don't want to take into account these externalities, will not be able to solve this. And a lot of these people are in our government right now in the Trump administration.
3: Uh, Dr. Uh, uh Mr. Sankara raises a good point, I think, also in my own personal experience. Uh, the state of France under Mitterrand, with the Grand Projet, with uh, the social works that were undertaken, uh, the excellent highways in France. As I drove around France, I was very happy for a certain amount of socialist uh, application to the roadways. Uh, How do you respond to that? Wasn't Mitterrand, France, wasn't that quite a nice country?
6: Well, France became the dark place in 1789, when the revolution broke out and the Jacobins came and started mass murdering people. It hasn't recovered since. It's a split country, as you see. Mm. But specifically to the... Specifically, as far as state intervention uh, uh, for the benefit of France's infrastructure, why stop with France? Sometimes when you go to Bavaria or elsewhere in Germany, people sort of wink at you, some people, and Mm. say, you know who built us freeways? The Autobahnen, they're the best. That would be a great socialist leader, Adolf Hitler. Yes. Yes. Okay, I am not uh, an Ayn Rand. I'm actually feudal. I'm a conservative. I like a commonwealth with self-government, a sovereign, a queen or a king, whatever. Uh, I like this republic because that resembles the system I like the most. We do not need the federal government to do everything. We needed the federal uh, system of highways in this country to move our nooks around. And the Eisenhower administration took care of it. And because I'd rather uh, defend myself and my family from the Reds than I acquire to Eisenhower's shenanigans, which doesn't follow, they make me happy.
3: Well, you can certainly now drive from New York to Los Angeles, which you couldn't back uh, in
6: the I can also in, in, fly. The
3: 1950s. Uh, I uh, can I also
6: take a horse. I'd like to go to it Eric. all depends, you know.
3: <laughs> to Eric Blanc here. Uh, <laughs> uh, you've mentioned Sweden. Both you and your colleague mentioned Sweden. Oftentimes, when socialism is being discussed, Sweden is held up. Other Scandinavian countries are held up as an example. Why not hold up other countries, such as Venezuela, which have had an experience with socialism that... I don't think any of us would care to share. Why is it always just the Scandinavian countries that seem to be held extolled as a, as a paradigmatic uh, uh, way of, of having state socialism?
4: Well, in fact, I actually already set up what I believe on this, and there was again no response, which is that if you're going to compare the United States uh, and compare the types of dynamics we might have here, if, as far as socialism or capitalism. You can't look at a country that is not at an equivalent level of political development and economic development, right? So actually, the important distinction I made was between the United States and uh, Nordic countries that have m- tremendously improved their living standards, even compared to us, on happiness metrics, on metrics of health, and I gave you statistics that are irrefutable. And so if you want to compare Venezuela to the United States, it's not a fair comparison. You could compare Venezuela with many um, unindustrialized Uh, countries in South America, under capitalism, that are similarly authoritarian or similarly uh, racked with poverty, right? And so why don't we condemn capitalism as a whole for the problems in Colombia, for instance, or in Mexico up until recently? So the question then of comparing the United States to uh, an underdeveloped country in the south is just like not serious intellectually or politically. And so, yeah, that's the reason why we would compare uh, Scandinavian countries and our Nordic countries, because those are the conditions in which we uh, most resemble the United States, in which a socialist transformation uh, would be most uh, relevant.
3: But didn't you also just say that Sweden was a backward country, uh, somewhat uh, comparable to the Soviet Union, and then socialism uh, took root that. in that? You said that, yes. yes. Uh, Mr. Reda. Yes,
5: I was going to say two things uh, about this. here. Uh, Uh, mentioned nuclear power, praising the Mitterrand government for using that resource. What is the position of the democratic left in the United States today towards nuclear power? They are against it because they think we can't go nuclear, that's dangerous. They are against fracking, which helps the economy a great deal, provides more jobs. Now, I would agree there are some problems with fracking, but I think those can be addressed. Environmental problems that affect people where the ground is... Uh, dug up for fracking. Uh, But the left today that you refer to uh, with this political correctness are not the democratic socialists. The left today is what Barack Obama criticized two weeks ago. The walk left that indulges in the political correctness and the tyranny of political correctness. That left today does not even call itself democratic socialist. They are politically correct left. That is, and you can see the great example of that, of the banning uh, and the covering up of that art exhibit, ironically in California in one of the high schools, done in the 30s by a member of the American, by a communist who was showing the tr- what he called the true history of the United States, with the exploitation of Native Americans and so forth. What does the woke left today say? Oh, that hurts our feelings. We can't be portrayed this way. We have to ban it, destroy it. The compromise reached where they cover it up. That's the left today. It is not Mr. Mr. Blanck's so- uh, socialist movement.
3: Uh, before we get into the, to the social part of this discussion, I'd like to stay on the technical and the economic. Uh, Dr. Hodakiewicz, you grew up in Poland, in communist Poland. Uh, wasn't the electrification of the Soviet Union a good thing for Russia?
6: Why? So that communists could beam their propaganda to the poor? Well, I'm asking you. <laughs> so my, a- my answer is electrification is good under freedom. It depends what purpose. Any human invention serves.
3: No, let me throw this then over, over to this side. Uh, was the electrification of the Soviet Union worth the omelet that had to be made by breaking so many eggs? The the, uh, the, the expropriation of uh, property from the kulaks and the great, uh, uh, the, 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 great the great hunger, of the holodomor in in the Ukraine. Uh, what's in your view the the trade off there?
0: Well, I would actually very much agree in the, in the sense that development isn't an end in itself, and development uh, comes at the price of human lives and human catastrophe, then it's, it's nothing worth celebrating. In fact, the Soviet Union, though, was on a path to a form of development that I still wouldn't have supported. It still had uh, the authoritarian party state and whatnot, but under the NEP was uh, the new economic program of the 1920s. There was a plan towards slow and stable uh, development. A, in the Soviet Union, um, uh, through the use of market mechanisms and, and, and state planning at the commanding heights of the economy, that didn't involve forced collectivization, didn't involve rapid industrialization, which prioritized heavy industry and unbalanced the whole Soviet economy and, and whatever else. So, I don't think there's any justification for Stalin's program at either the uh, question of uh, development. I, I think there was, there was no justification. In fact, the Soviet Union was on a path to better development even uh, before the rise of Stalin. Dr.
6: Hulogarits? Well, as far as I remember my Marx, and I've read most of it, uh, Marx preached that we have to industrialize to create the working class, which is the leading force in the universe and history, because without the working class in industrialization, we won't have paradise on earth called socialism. Therefore, Stalin, just like Lenin and any other commie, was necessary in that view. They simply disregarded all other human beings in their Gnostic drive to utopia. And we're just getting another take on the same old, worn-out Gnostic story. That's
3: Mis- all. Mr. Radish, uh, you were a communist in your youth. Is that correct? Yes, very oh. briefly, thank you. Uh, what? <laughs> So was Robert uh, Conquest <laughs> for half a year. <laughs> Since you've had experience on both sides of this particular political question, what was the cause of your change? Was there a specific well, two things.
5: When you're young, an overriding theory that explains everything. Marxism, Leninism, remember, it was said to be a science. So once you knew its platitudes and its basic points, and you got that from short summaries of what Lenin and Marx believed, not from reading them, you knew that you needed nothing else. You didn't have to know physics. You didn't have to know science. You didn't have to know philosophy. Marxism explained everything. So you have a totality that gives you assurance you're going to do good in the world by following the tenets of Marxism-Leninism. Now, why did I believe that? Here, I attribute it to the communist high school I attended in the midst of McCarthy's in the United States, where every single teacher in the faculty, including the principal of the school, was a member of the Communist Party of the United States. The historian of the school told me that. I didn't know that at the time. I thought few were. And the history teacher I had taught in class that Marxism-Leninism was a science, and if we understood dialectical materialism, that's all we have to know. And this was an authority figure. Remember, I was in ninth, tenth grade when he started spewing this stuff. It's very impressive and he gave a whole picture of how it works out and explains everything that is to be explained. Now, it rubbed off me and I soon discarded it in terms of length of time believing this crap, but unfortunately the other person he, uh, he, uh, he got to adopt the theory still believes it and that is my high school classmate a few years below me, Angela Y. Davis. Angela Davis said publicly that she learned her communism from that high school teacher we both had. So I was indoctrinated, as she was. It stuck with her. It didn't with me. Which high school was this? From? Elizabeth Irwin High School. In Sounds New York like State. my it the school. the high school of the Little Red Schoolhouse, which we called the Little Red Schoolhouse for
3: Little Reds. <laughs> well, I lived in Greenwich Village for many years near yeah, the you know. Little Red Schoolhouse, so I know. Uh, to the socialists, um, uh, Mr. Adish has just uh, invoked um, dialectical materialism and the quasi religious nature of the belief in socialism, certainly in communism as it was practiced in the Soviet Union. What is your response to that?
0: I mean, I, I would say that, you know, uh, I'm a, uh, not a dialectical materialist. You know, I'm more of a, uh, a Kantian. You know, I think socialism is something that ought to be, not, not something that, that necessarily will be. And I think we need to Uh, push for reforms, which are broadly uh, popular, reforms like Medicare for All, reforms to to decommodify sectors of the economy. Uh, Then I think the logic of those reforms will lead people to say, why don't I have more stake, more power in my workplace? Why don't I push this logic further? And maybe then they'll decide to go from social democracy to socialism, or maybe not. This is li- we live in free societies. But Mr. Mr.
3: Blancas used the word coercion. Uh, uh, I believe you did in your opening speech, Eric. Uh, oh, I, I think I, I used or or did coercion. you you, yeah. you you use coercion as well? So how do you reconcile those two? Well,
0: I think co- coercion is, in fact, I was just merely stating that when we say political coercion, we're often talking about the coercion that comes from collective action. So we're not just talking about state legislation and reforms, which I think are often justified and often involves diminishing the power of private property. Uh, And I think that diminishing of private property can be done in such a way that expands the scope of freedom, including civic freedoms and liberties. And that's the experience of of Western Europe. But uh, to allow me just a brief 15-second digression, if you think about the workplace. Uh, if I enter into an employment relationship with you and I'm working for you, then obviously we're dependent on each other. But it's an asymmetrical dependency. You need my uh, labor less and I need my grocery money. Mm-hmm. That's why I need to get together with my fellow employees and form a union. Now, this union is going to set certain demands on you, which is, in fact, coercion. You know, we're trying to extract something. It's a power relationship. It's a power struggle. But you're right as a human being your right to think what you want, to worship what you want, to vote how you want, your free speech and so on, that is unalienable, and that's your private right that's not rooted in your private property. So I would want to coerce the the former but allow you your full civic rights, and I think that's been the experience of social democracy throughout Europe.
3: Now, Mr. has just used the phrase, um, Power imbalance, which we hear often from uh, socialists and communists, that everything, and we'll hear more about this on the second half of this debate this afternoon when we get into cultural Marxism. But is there really, do you accept the, the, the premise? If I hire you to do a job for me, is there really a power imbalance? And is it, is it the money that creates the power imbalance? What about my need for the labor that you're providing? Well,
6: number one, I'd like to thank the gentleman for admitting that his ideology is based on hatred, called class struggle and coercion, which means terror. That's very nice. Uh, My beliefs are inimical to terror and um, uh, hatred. I, I believe in love, and we should all get along and not mass murder each other which um, your ideology proposes, ultimately. Uh, Now, as far as as, um, uh, your question, no, because I'm free to quit any time. If I didn't have a family, I wouldn't have to do anything. I could barely float anywhere, and all I need is my books. I like to read, and I like to write. That's all I write. That's all I like. So I don't really care what my generic employer would say. I happen to love the the Lord and Master and respect Him, and I serve Him at work here. This is not a work, by the way, it's a hobby, it's a dream come true. But I am in no way compelled to be here by hard economic circumstances until I can move. I can fend for myself. I can do anything I want for my family. Uh, I am not enslaved where I am. And then when I can no longer move, my family will take care of me. And so will my church, the Catholic Church. Mr. Radish, as soon as I, we, yeah. we get rid of socialists from the Catholic Church. Uh,
3: is <coughs> this notion of power imbalance, uh, it, was that also true uh, in your youth? Would, was that something that was discussed in a sort of Marxist Hegelian kind of way? Well, you know, However you wish to respond to Mr. Sankara's yes. point. Well,
5: yes. First of all, uh, he said some things uh, go back to his uh, praise of the purity of the NEP in Russia. That was, as he well knows, a temporary policy instituted by Lenin because the entire economy had been destroyed. There, no more, there was no working class in Russia anymore. The great factories, they all disappeared. Everything was grinding to a halt. The Soviet Union state power was collapsing. So he was, by creating the NEP, admitted in a sense it would fail unless they turned back temporarily to capitalism. The people who wanted permanent, like Bukharin, you know what happened to them. Uh, this was a temporary measure, and in fact, if you read Soviet history, under the NEP, the state repression increased. More arrests, more persecution of dissenters, because they knew NEP would create a new middle class that was attuned to profits and making themselves better by a market economy mechanisms. And they had to suppress anyone who advocated that during this very temporary measure until they could back, get back to national state planning and then create a command economy industrializing at the expense of the whole Russian people. So that's one thing. Uh, secondly, uh, the reforms that are mentioned quite often uh, the creation of unions, and here's where I disagree with Marek. If you were in the 1890s and the 1900s, and you were working 12 or a 14-hour day, and then a labor movement created and argued we have to have an eight-hour day, you wouldn't have had that except for what the labor movement contributed. There was nothing wrong. Labor movement, in fact, the unions were, by and large, recognized by the so-called capitalist class and worked within the system, and they understood sometimes with opposition from smaller industrialists, not so much with larger industrialists, they understood that the way to stability and avoidance of strike is cutting a deal with organized labor because they recognized they could not carry on unless they worked with labor within the same system. And the union's demands were largely accepted by the capitalists. And if you read the works of two socialist historians, the late James Weinstein, and Gabriel Kolko on the Progressive Era and Progressive Reform. The point of both of these books is that great reforms of the early progressive movement were sponsored by and backed by the leading corporate capitalists of the day, including unemployment insurance, sickness insurance, and so forth. Sometimes small businesses were against it, like the Meat Inspection Act. The small businesses couldn't compete with J.P. Armour and company. The big corporations and meatpacking favored the reforms that the left favored. The small industrialists didn't want them because the only way to compete is by not having regulation which they accepted and favored.
3: Well, let's uh, uh, amplify this point as we move into the second part of this proposition, which is the uh, social uh, aspects of, of, of socialism and communism. 1906 uh, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, in which the, the last chapter in that book is a prolonged owed to communism, socialism, uh, as the workers were unionizing in the meatpacking industry, which Mr. Radosh has just uh, amplified. Um, are you saying that the unions would work hand-in-glove with the government to create this socialist enterprise, or would they be antagonistic uh, to either of you?
4: The, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Contrary to what you asserted, in fact, the capitalists fought violently in the United States, killing more uh, workers in the United States than most European countries to prevent unionization. And it was the only... The
5: and order of industry, I accept that.
4: No, the, the facts are actually indisputable on this as far as the level of violence of the US capitalist class to prevent even a basic democratic, right? like the right to collectively organize. There's not actually a dispute amongst... The You're referring the
3: to the auto worker strikes, etc. Well, not not just, yeah.
4: uh, including earlier. But so if we look at the process through which uh, the right to unionize became a uh, fact, it was through uh, mass strikes, particularly in 1934 in uh, Minneapolis, in Toledo, and in San Francisco, that actually forced a... Uh, recalcitrant capitalist class and included and push the Roosevelt administration to put teeth on uh, labor regulations. So it's not because social we're not the people inventing class struggle. The class struggle exists because there is in fact a contradiction between the interests of the owners and the fact of the majority of us who have to work and sell our labor for that. We didn't invent that. It still exists whether we cl- choose to acknowledge it or not. And the fact is even today if you look at the tremendous pressure that the capitalist class has put to roll back the rights of unions, the idea that we're going to somehow rely on these people to give us basic democratic rights is ludicrous. And the f- proof is that the ones that we've made in recent period, it hasn't be- been because we've relied on like the uh, moral uh, clarity of capitalists or tried to work with them, but in fact the recent strikes have shown that it's only through struggle against the minority people that control the economic power of this country that we've made significant progress for working people.
3: A question about technology for the socialists. Uh, where is the creative element in socialist countries technologically? Uh, in my experience, and I'm sure in the experience of others uh, on the right, the technology of the Soviet period was primitive and crude. Uh, it was derivative. It was, In the case of China today, it's stolen uh, from creative Western capitalist societies. Uh, given the fact that Under the economic system, there's very little reward for uh, individual initiative. What, what What provides any aspect of technological improvement under a socialist system?
0: Well, in states administered by democratic socialists, you in fact saw, through the use of the mechanism of sectoral bargaining, a push towards capital intensivity. And it just makes sense. If you have strong unions with strong bargaining power backed by a social democratic state then those workers are going to make, be able to make higher wage demands. And in the context of sectoral bargaining, um, it meant that the weakest and least efficient firms went out of business. The middling firms were able to survive. The most efficient firms were able to accumulate excess profit, a result of sectoral bargaining, to expand uh, production. And they often expanded in a way that limited their dependence on, on, these, um, uh, on, on uh, workers by, by, by capital intensity. Uh, and obviously the role of the state is not to control unions, but just to uh, use active labor market policies and things that many people across the political spectrum would would, would agree with.
3: And isn't it troubling, though, that the definition of fascism under Mussolini was uh, effectively a partnership between government and business so that they were working in a collective manner? Hitler adopted some of this and, of course, made it even worse uh, socially as he built on that. Uh, are you are you calling for
0: a, a, essentially a unitary state here? No, corporatism has taken many forms. Obviously, you know, not all of them fascists, of course. Um, but I also wouldn't describe the regulatory state in the U.S. as 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 corporatist. I think actually the arguments are provocative. Gabriel Coco's Triumph of Liberalism, but I think they're they're largely debunked. The idea being that uh, big corporations actually want a barrier to entry, so they supported regulations, so it's harder for smaller competitors to compete. I don't think it's rational, but I don't think it actually, as historical record, happened that way. But what I'm proposing is an autonomous, strong labor movement that's driving um, uh, development through the use of sectoral um, bargaining and coercing the capitalist class into making certain uh, uh, concessions. So, uh, for example, if you have a um, If you're a Swedish capitalist, you'd be able to say in the 1950s and 60s that I don't have—I have have to deal with more regulations. I have to deal with with, uh, higher wage demands than my counterparts in France and and um, the UK. But I also have relative industrial uh, peace. They were able to say that. But the industrial peace wasn't because the government outlawed in a corporatist framework strikes. It was because um, they uh, were out-leveraged by a very strong LO, a very strong National Trade Federation.
3: Uh, In Europe, however, the price of hiring a worker is almost prohibitive, and it actually works against uh, full employment, as we see in France, which has an unemployment rate of usually over 10%. Uh, You cannot fire the worker effectively once you hire him. Uh, Hasn't that changed the power imbalance between capital and labor in a very significant way?
0: Well, I think that uh, France isn't a good example today, but I think you will see that historically in these cases in social, social democracies, I mean in a theoretical sense, workers can get bargaining power that can put pressure on firms that mean that weak and inefficient firms will not be able to cope with the wage demands of workers. Why should we want weak and inefficient firms to survive? I think those firms uh, disintegrating and those uh, uh, workers being reallocated to more dynamic parts of the economy is what anyone should want, uh, capitalist or a uh, well, democratic socialist. sounds like a
3: capitalist argument, uh, Dr. Tavits. Well,
6: uh, okay, let me, let me make uh, uh, an aquarium back out of the socialist fish soup. Uh, number one, and this disclaimer, you asked me individually, what I liked, and I said, I told you what my relationship was to the blood-sucking capitalist exploiters that run this school. However you didn't ask me about my relationship to trades unions. Well, if they are anti-communist, they are fabulous, like Poland Solidarity. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two, let's go back to Rerum Novarum, the papal encyclical, which preached the glory of organized labor. Which pope For Christ, was that? Leo. Leo the 13th. Leo. Leo the thirteenth. Uh, please remember that in the nineteenth century, it was the lords and the reactionary thinkers in England and France that spoke out against child labor and inhumanities of liberalism, which was very capitalistic at that point. Uh, This background is necessary to understand how we can face the siren song of, as conservatives, a siren song of socialism. It is indispensable for us to understand that we don't have to have uh, what they call social democratic syndicalism. That's very strange. They are very flexible because of their dialectics, the comrades are. A, it's never we can never nail them down because they are so relativistic that the dialectics allow them to change everything over time. They won't owe up for the rape of the environment, but because, because it was Stalin terror, it was Mao. Now they're have they're going to show us a good time on that. Lightning path to paradise. Uh, and it all sounds reasonable to half wits and the uneducated, meaning the denizens of our universities and colleges, which have been in the grips of a heresy since the countercultural revolution of the 1960s. Once we fix that, they will go and practice in their little communes. On themselves and inflicted upon themselves. Well, and, let me. And I wanted to add yes. that I lived in Denmark. I have family in Denmark in Scandinavia. One aunt is in Sweden, so I know the system. From my childhood, not only the glories of socialism in Poland, but also uh, the repugnant vision of and practice of the Swedish and Scandinavian socialist parasite. I don't know if the comrades will share with us that the greatest achievement of socialism in Sweden was to forcibly sterilize the handicapped and the minorities. That's because everybody had to be equal, meaning the same. They went after the labs. Have you lived in Scandinavia? Have you visited Sweden? Have you seen anything? I doubt it. Oh, actually, maybe you like it. So.
3: Well, let's, let's ask, uh, as, as we move towards our uh, final remarks uh, in a bit, uh, first of all, would you care, either of you care to respond to Dr. uh point that he's just raised? Do
0: you want to do Sweden? Um, well, I think, to be honest, most of the doctor's points have been bizarre anecdotes and non-sequiturs. On the actual point of Sweden, there's no doubt that in the 1930s, there was policies put in place by Sweden, put in place by previous governments prior to the Social Democrats, continued in some form that involved uh, sterilization and things like that. And this was uh, you know, uh, common backward policies that were instituted by a whole host of liberal, progressive, and even conservative governments under the influence of eugenicist uh, you know thinking. And including that was not the United States, including the United States, and that was not continued elsewhere, but obviously. As people who believe in the the, the autonomy of of individuals and, and, and individual freedom, you know that should be rejected in all its forms, be it left or or right. In fact, our views are not relativistic. We have certain sets of views that allows us to criticize governments that claim the mantle of socialism and praise other governments and other policies pursued by people who don't claim the mantle of socialism. Uh, I salute Social Security and and uh, Medicare, products of. The, the Democratic Party of the U.S., uh, a, a purely uh, enthusiastic capitalist uh, party, and I say that as a socialist. This is what it means to not be an extremist and to look at history and to look seriously empirically and, and not just a priori, you know, string together um, musings based on, on moral philosophy and nothing else.
3: One of the things that bothers the, the, uh, the people on the right about the, the left in terms of social democracy is that it, it seems to ape the uh, conventions of actual republican or democratic government but su- soon enough turns into a totalitarian society. The, the People's Republic of China, the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, the word republic seems to be almost a fig leaf rather than uh, an actual description of the political system and therefore people are suspicious of it based on the past almost 100 years of this particular ruse. How do you respond to that?
0: Well, in many countries, socialists created modern constitutions and created uh, political democracies that are, in fact, real democracies. Uh, Socialists and communists even wrote uh, large parts of the constitution in in Italy, participated in post-war reconstruction, won political democracy and freedom in in Sweden, expanded the suffrage, were part of the, the, or from the Chartist movement onward, were part of the expansion of the suffrage and civic liberties. When I see the parliament, when I see a House of Representatives, I don't see a foreign capitalist evil body. I see, I see signs of socialist success. I see signs of success of reformers. I see true democratic institutions. I think we should always be wary of ideologues, left or right, and be wary of what people can do if they have too much power. And we need to preserve a free civic society. This is all, all true. You shouldn't just sit back and trust socialists or trust nationalists or trust libertarians. You should, in fact, Maintain critical faculties and retain the ability to to organize and decide what what you want to see. And this is this is living in a free society.
3: Let me give Dr. Hodakayevits if I may, then run then to you, Ron, uh, a chance to respond to your, the charge that you're just anecdotal and uh, not specific in your criticisms.
6: Uh, the esteemed gentleman must be a victim of his lack of education, and I can't help him, Mr. Radash. Uh, yes. Uh,
5: First of all, just a few points that are made. I haven't spoken in quite a while. Uh, On the union movement and Mussolini, first, uh, you ignore, for example, the example of what happened in what were called the needle trays and the clothing industry in New York, the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union and the Amalgamated Clothing Workers. Uh, You know when they got successful and gained recognition and power? It was during the Wilson administration when they set up their own state-run subdivisions and signed contracts agreeing that the army and the United States would not sign contracts with any firm that did not recognize the two unions. These were unions that had militant socialist strikes in the 1900s and then of course after the Triangle Fire which you all know about but that's not what led them to success. What led them to success was working with the corporate structure of the Wilson administration, which got them the recognition and the power they had always wanted. It was not through class struggle. Secondly, uh, on the socialist contribution here, I've been dying to quote this one thing from my intellectual hero, Leza Kolakowski, who wrote, be that as it may, referring to the final outcome of socialism, socialist movements strongly contributed to changing the political landscape for the better. They inspired a number of social reforms without which the contemporary welfare state, which most of us take for granted, would be unthinkable. It would be a pity if the collapse of communist socialism resulted in the demise of the socialist tradition. Uh, I agree with that. I think you have to give credit to the demands made by individual socialists which were incorporated and weren't, in the basic sense, the threat to the capitalist system that uh, my colleagues on the left uh, think it was. Uh, and uh, finally, on Mussolini, uh, Mussolini was a favorite among s- virtually all the American intellectual class, the political thinkers, and the labor movement. Samuel Gompers, who founded the American Federation of Labor and was a leading lab- international national labor leader in that period when Mussolini's coming to power, wrote a big editorial in the American Federation as the publication of the AFL, endorsing and supporting Mussolini and his corporate program as the best guide for the labor movement in the United States. Mussolini was popular through the entire political spectrum. And of course, under the NRA, FDR's appointed the head of the NRA, which was the first big agency that the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional, and it collapsed had a picture of Mussolini behind his desk and considered himself a disciple of Mussolini who was creating through the National Recovery Act what Mussolini created in Italy. So, Mussolini was extremely popular and seen as a guide in the United States by all kinds of people.
3: Now, as we move towards our our final statements in a bit, I'd like to uh, dwell on this part of our proposition, uh, which is that communism, socialism, has never really been tried yet. Uh, And I'm I'm going to turn to uh, our friends on the left here to amplify that. Do you accept that it hasn't been properly instituted? And also, uh, is there a way, and this will be to everybody, is there a way to synthesize, as Mr. Redash just suggested, with the incorporation of certain liberal or socialist or union principles, is there a way to achieve a synthesis that is workable and that does not fall to the false promises of the past that resulted in the collapse of say the USSR which only managed to last 75 years before disappearing nearly overnight?
0: Yeah
4: I mean I think we need to be honest and say that the attempts thus far that have uh, eliminated private ownership of the means of production have not reached anywhere near the type of socialist democracy uh, and abundance um, and flourishing that we want. Right? Uh, Our case is not that that is inevitable, though, but that there's contingent contextual factors about those specific cases that wouldn't be replicated in the United States. But are you still
3: advocating ownership of the means of production for the state?
4: Yeah, but there's a lot of different forms that that could take. That could take the question of uh, market socialism. It could take uh, a lot of different forms. And we've learned from it. Contrary to what's been said, we're not dogmatists. We've learned from the lessons of history, and we're not going to replicate the mistakes that have been made. But the question that's been posed as an alternative to socialism, that somehow we can find a synthesis between capitalism and socialism, we have to look again at the empirical uh, record, which is to say that when welfare states and significant welfare states have been won. It's been capitalists that have tried to undermine that, and that these are inherently unstable uh, syntheses. So the question is either we're going to move forward from social democracy to real socialism, or it's going to get rolled back. And that's what we're experiencing all across Uh, Western Europe right now. So the idea that there's some sort of lasting alternative to socialism is just not borne out by the record. And I think that either we're going to have to move towards a real socialist solution or we're going to see the rollback of the gains that, again, were won by our side and not benevolent gifts from above.
3: Dr. Hodakiewicz, how can you respond? Would you respond to that, please? Well,
6: here we go again with real socialism. Mm -hmm. Lenin and Stalin were not dogmatists. Lenin introduced the NEP to save Communism, which he had attempted to institute following the Bolshevik coup. Stalin made a pact with Hitler, because that's how dialectics dictated, because whatever, and Roosevelt. whatever whatever, advances the cause of the revolution is objectively good. A real socialism, I had in my school, in my childhood. It sounds pretty much like Professor Vadosh's school, except that some of our teachers were dissidents. And most of what I learned was at home from the survivors of Auschwitz and Stalinogorsk's gulag and various other assorted human wrecks who were experimented upon by the socialists. So. I was saved by Ronald Reagan and the United States of America because I went back to Poland for, in 1980. I just turned 18. I thought there would be an anti-communist uprising to fight. Unfortunately, uh, solidarity was crushed. My father went to jail, as usual. And so I was in the student underground fighting against ideas like this, publishing underground, an underground news sheet, and distributing stuff. The Americans got me out. For the first time in my life, the secret police wouldn't come to confiscate my books in California. So I I still think I'm in paradise. Except now, the paradise starts smelling. Starts smelling of socialism. We need to be clear-headed. We ought to establish or re-establish the holy officium to sniff out those who wish us ill those who wish to terrorize us, and those who wish to kill us.
3: Thank you. Uh, before we have our closing arguments, I'd like to turn to the left here. Uh, Francis Fukuyama, when the Soviet Union collapsed, wrote and published a book called the, Last, uh, the End of History and the Last Man, yeah. in which he envisioned a kind of capitalist, d- democratic capitalist uh, state as the end state of this Hegelian Marxist progression. Do you accept that, reject that, or where do you stand on? What is the end, end state as far as you are, you are concerned?
0: Well, I, I'm not a Hegelian. I don't believe in end states. I believe in the permanence of politics. Even if we were in a society without class antagonisms, where workers own their, their workplaces and so on, if me and you had to figure out how to cross the Potomac, Uh, And in our communities and you wanted to build a tunnel. I want to build a bridge That's a political dispute and political disputes need to be mediated by free civil societies and democratic institutions And those institutions by nature are always going to be transforming. They're always going to be changing. They're always going to be evolving Today in the United States. We don't need to ban Monarchist parties. No one wants monarchy in the United States We had a revolution to get rid of monarchy in my ideal of a socialist society There won't be anything banning people from trying to restore capitalism But I don't believe it'll be a popular outcome if people aren't truly in a better and more just society.
3: Uh, Mr. Blank, do you have any uh, additional remarks to this point before we start the final statements?
4: No, I thought that covered it well.
3: All right, then. Let's start uh, with uh, Mr. Radosh for your closing remarks. Yes. uh, Uh, Three and a half minutes uh, and a hard stop at four, please.
5: Yes. Uh, I think the fact is, as I said, and let me amplify that, that the socialist tradition has one valuable thing it did. It provided accurately and zeroed in on what were clear inequities in the existing political and economic system. That was a contribution, as Kolakowski said. What it did that was wrong was producing the alternative of something called Socialism, which would be supposedly, like the Marxists who believe, the next stage of history as capitalism would disappear. As I said in my opening statement, I think that is completely wrong because capitalism, socialism complement and grow together in complementary and sometimes antagonistic, antagonistic forms. And that there is no something in the future called socialism. It cannot exist. It has failed even in the countries that were democratic and tried it. It would fail again. And what the people who advocate are doing, as I said, is turning the clock back to all the illusions we had in the 60s and 70s when I was their age and arguing for socialism as a different kind of system. And once again, I see the new generation using the old arguments as if they were something new. They are the same arguments. They've been discredited. They've collapsed. And therefore, you need reforms and changes within the existing system. And you do not want to hold out some mythical heaven on earth. As Josh Murawski says in his book, where he traces all the failures of the existing socialist societies, including the democratic socialist ones like in Israel and elsewhere in Western Europe, uh, they have failed. They're going to fail again because nothing
4: has changed.
3: That's it. Mr. Sundkara. Oh, I think
4: it's Actually, yeah. um, oh, Mr. Blox. So our case was that we should defend and expand democracy And, uh, surprisingly, no strong, or maybe not that surprising, no strong argument was made against that. Uh, We need to separate out capitalism and democracy um, from each other and not conflate them. Because, in fact, democratic gains were made primarily, and the evidence is quite clear on this, from struggles from below, not uh, granted by uh, capitalist owners. And, in fact, the same is going to be the case now. The expansion of democracy is going to take the form of struggles from below against the people that currently run the society. And I think that the case is pretty strong on those merits, that we're not fighting for uh, heaven on earth, but in fact we're trying to defend what has been won and expand that. And in in order to make that happen, we're going to have to go up against uh, a very small amount of people that have an inordinate amount of wealth and control of our society. And I just want to say one thing, that as far as the defense of uh, capitalism goes, you know, you talked about erasing history. I think mean, we should talk really honestly about the horrors of capitalism, right? And these were totally glossed over by you. You talk about coercion. What about the coercion of the dictatorships of the United States has propped up all across the world, or even recently with the recent coup in Bolivia, right? Let's talk about misery. You talk about the famines that have been imposed by capitalist irrationality and colonialism across the world. Talk about coercion in the United States right now, where you have a government that has uh, children uh, in cages right like let's just be real talk about the united states repression about the repression of socialists and dissidents and not even just radical people who are against the war so this right, you know this idea that democracy and uh, capitalism are the same thing is just not borne out by the record. Our record as socialists, as democratic socialists, is far better than any of our competitors. And for anybody who's seriously interested in the record of history, I think it's quite clear who's on the side of democracy and who's on the side of minority rule. And I'll just end with this. The basic proposition that I ended with at the start of my talk was not refuted, which is that if we have a chance of existing as a human species, given the threat of climate catastrophe, we're going to have to have serious coercion against the capitalist class to be able to radically transform the way our energy resources are being used. You have a fossil fuel industry right now that is willing to literally drive humanity into the ground, right, because it will get a little bit more profits. So the question is, right now, it's not an abstract question. It's a question is, who is going to actually be able to preserve the gains of human civilization right now? I would argue that it's quite clear that socialists so the people putting forward real solutions to that. And the defenders of capitalism are literally uh, justifying a suicidal uh, political project.
3: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Well,
6: He's made my point, but uh, let me just... Thank
3: you. You have three minutes to amplify that point. Well,
6: every heresy contains a grain of truth. Uh, There is injustice in the world, and most of the time we get the short end of the stick. Uh, I'm lucky I have a beautiful and extremely sagacious wife, other people may not be as blessed. I don't envy them. I don't want to struggle against them. I don't want to share my wife with others, unless she wants to dump me and move on. Uh, As far as socialist fantasies, as I said, they've been around history forever. As far as capitalism, capitalism is not the sacred screed. It's just a tool. And the proof is in the pudding. Where you have free markets, there is prosperity. Uh, me, I can fantasize about divine right monarchy. I don't like it. I like, as I said, uh, uh, Republican and monarchical mis- mixed systems. But I can fantasize about it and say, well, if, we gi- if you give me a chance, I shall introduce a new form of divine rights monarchy. I won't have a politburo. We'll have a king or a queen and a court. And the peasants shall plow the land. That's feudalism, but it sounds like socialism. So yeah, sure, we can have that kind of a system. Uh, and what? The point is, as Professor Radosh has made it over and over again, without any results, is that... There is no paradise on Earth. Earthly systems are imperfect because human beings are imperfect. And human nature being what it is, we're not angels. We're fallen angels. We cannot possibly achieve paradise on Earth. And we never will. And here is another proposition to enslave us. And I'm going to fight tooth and nail so it never happens in the United States of America on my watch. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Sankara, you have the last word.
0: Well, I don't want paradise on Earth. I want a world where we don't have higher rates, a country where we don't have higher rates of infant mortality than our peers in other advanced industrial nations that have universal health care. I want a country in which it doesn't matter where you're from, if you have potential, you're able to reach that potential. If you're born in at uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut, you have the same life outcomes if born in Hart- Hartford or Waterbury. This has been the core of the socialist ideal. And even though we're not living in a paradise now, we're not living in the worst of all possible worlds. And in part, it's been because of radicals. Now the real question, the real challenge, and the, the intelligent cha- challenge from the other side is why go beyond capitalism? If going beyond capitalism, if taking this next step to socialism has been uh, has led to all sorts of calamities and disasters, and there's no doubt uh, that's what the record of state socialism in the Eastern Bloc was. Now, fundamentally social democracy is not stable. Social democracy, we expand the rights of working people, we expand their control over large parts of the economy, we empower them to fight back, but we leave the levers of power in the control of people who are waiting and biding their time for the opportunity to, to roll them back. So we had in the 1970s the, the different outcomes. You had capitalists in Sweden and other countries that said this compromise that was working for us in the 50s and 60s is no lo- longer working for us. There's contingent factors why. Our profitability is lower because of the OPEC crisis, because wage demands are too high, because of globalization, increased international competition. We're under all this pressure. So now we're going to withhold our ability to invest. This is the true power of capital, its ability to withhold investment. And what does that mean? It sounds like an abstract technical thing, but what it means is that a plant that was once employing people and fostering communities and and working people who are supporting their families for that work is now no longer in business or is being shuttered or moved to a different country. This is the coercion that we're trying to undo. And this is the reason why we need to think of a resolution to this dilemma. The social democracies of Europe were faced with this dilemma in the 70's. One path was to simply find a way to restore profitability, to let capitalists restructure with deregulating a bit, smashing unions to restore profitability. Uh, Then our gambit was, well at least in this condition of restored growth we're going to be able to to tax and we're going to be able to uh, maintain our our core parts of our welfare system like, like healthcare, but there was always a choice in the left of social democracy which was slowly converting ownership of these private industries to collective ownership by workers. Not the state, but turning each individual uh, worker into a worker ownership. This is the socialist vision. It's a true ownership society. What capitalists are not advocating for is not the market. The market is not the same thing as capitalism. What they are advocating for is a society built upon the petty tyranny of individual capitalists. I believe every worker can govern. (laughs)
6: Thank you very much. Leon Trotsky said that in the Soviet Union, every Soviet man will be like Socrates.
5: And I have a question for Vasquez. Very very (laughs) briefly, yes. If if you have these goals, why are you supporting for power in Britain an extremist, anti-Semitic Stalinist named Jeremy Corbyn? If that's the way forward, which you advocate in your book,
0: Stands I stands uh, in the way of everything. You've just I, I, I said. think Jeremy Corbyn is is neither of those things. I think, in oh, fact, okay. his views far closer to yours than than he does to to mine.
6: <laughs> so you're an anti-Semitic Stalinist. Congratulations.
0: Well, I never thought. <laughs> let me let me uh, first of all thank all of our
3: uh, debaters for the very stimulating discussion that we've had. A couple of observations of my own. I think we still haven't resolved the problem for the left that the right simply does not trust you, that the historical record seems to indicate a lot of dead people, a lot of destruction, a lot of coercion, uh, to very little end. And I think that's one of the problems that uh, still needs to be addressed. On the right, uh, I think you've responded to the notion that there are positive elements to the socialist calls for ameliorative principles, but within a largely capitalistic and democratic and lib- freedom and liberal society. Uh, the question of whether these principles are possibly synthetic uh, seems to me to have been left open and we don't really understand it, although I think uh, the historical weight of evidence is still against uh, your side. Uh, that said, let me uh, tell the uh, audience that we will be taking a break in at 11 o'clock and all of our speakers will go downstairs to our spin room where you will be asked questions by our hostess, Carmen Tyler, and uh, will be interviewed live uh, uh, on the live stream. Uh, At 12 o'clock, we will break for lunch. And at 12.30, once everyone has his or her box lunch provided by IWP, uh, I will make a short presentation (coughs) on the fall of the Berlin Wall, which I witnessed in person uh, 30 years ago, We also would like to call your attention to, in the display case out in the hall, some artifacts from the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, which have been provided by our sister museum in Los Angeles, the Venda Museum of the Cold War, uh, of which uh, I'm a board member. And then the second debate on cultural Marxism will be back in this room at 2 o'clock. So thank you very much to all the debaters, and thank you to the audience as well.
1: Thank you everybody for coming. I want to bring everybody's attention to the afternoon debate, which will be resolved that socialism and communism, having failed repeatedly in the 20th century at the economic level, now seeks to implement its social goals via cultural Marxism. That'll be at 2 o'clock. We have four new debaters. So it was an Oxford-style debate, which isn't often done in this country, but I hope uh, we've done it fairly. Hope you're both happy with that. You'll also be able to hear more questions from our debaters Uh, after this. They will be in the media room. If you have any questions, you can pass them to me. I wanna thank Michael Walsh for uh, moderating our debate. And Carmen, now we cut to you.
7: Hi, I'm Carmen Tyler with the Imprimatur Group. And I'm standing here with John Lekowski. And um, he is the founder of the Institu- Institute of World Politics. And we're going to talk to him a little bit. First off, tell me about this fabulous, the history of this fabulous building.
2: This uh, building was built in 1908 uh, by Charles Marlat, who was the chief entomologist of the agriculture department, who uh, married a very prosperous lady. Uh, but I like to say that if you want to live in a 12,000-foot mansion like this eight blocks north of the White House, you just need to become an entomologist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, it was a private mansion until um, 1969. What's noteworthy about it is that he was an artist, and he... Designed all of these different insects mm-hmm. which he sent to the wood carvers and there are carvings in the wood paneling in our major public rooms of Butterflies and beetles and dragonflies and all sorts of wonderful things in the 1970s the the um, The building was uh, the trade mission of the Soviet embassy okay. and it was also a KGB station oh, wow. and so um uh, we have here, one of our master's degrees is in strategic intelligence. It's the first intelligence degree outside of the U.S. government. And uh, one of our courses is in counterintelligence. And in um, that course we had a guest lecturer once who was a, uh, a KGB defector who uh, announced to the class I used to have office upstairs. Oh my goodness,
3: that's
7: fascinating. Well, now it houses the Institute of World Politics, yes.
2: yes.
7: yes. So um, tell me, why did you fo- found the Institute of World Politics?
2: I served in uh, on a congressional staff in the State Department in the National Security Council. I had the Soviet portfolio for four years under Ronald Reagan in the White House. And I found that there were many people doing... Uh, Jobs in government for which uh, I thought they were inadequately professionally prepared and I included myself in that number uh, on certain things in spite of having had a very substantial education in international affairs and so um, I uh, I found that nobody except senior military officers studied military strategy. I happen to think that diplomats and policy makers who make the decision to send our troops into harm's way should know something about military strategy and should be able to integrate the diplomatic art with the military art. I found that most intelligence officers, maybe 95% had never studied intelligence. There's a lot to study. There's the history of it. There are, are the policy issues. There are the epistemological issues. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do you know something is true? How do you know that your own cultural biases or foreign disinformation or strategic deception are not uh, coloring your views of reality? Uh, There are many other impediments to seeing foreign reality correctly. Uh, None of the major schools of international affairs were studying things like propaganda, disinformation, strategic deception, and so on. Um, Then nobody was studying counterintelligence. Uh, We're the only institution that was paying attention, for example, to some of the activities of um, uh, uh, that are not just espionage, but the foreign influence activities, the interference with uh, our elections, for example, mm-hmm. the, the, the Russian and Chinese interference uh, in, our, uh, in, in the social-political life of our country. Uh, we have been studying this. Uh, we teach it. We've been filling these gaps. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are many other gaps. The whole field of public diplomacy which uh, is relations with people, and not just with governments. And that includes such fields as, as uh, you know, exchanges, visitors' programs, information programs, international broadcasting by the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, that sort of thing. Uh, it, there is a whole field of strategic influence, political action, political warfare, ideological warfare. These are things that happen in the world. Nobody was teaching these things.
7: We'll remind our viewers the different um, studies that they can do here, the graduate programs.
2: Well, we have five master's degree programs. One is called Statecraft and International Affairs. Another is called Statecraft and National Security. Uh, we have a, our third two-year program is called Strategic Intelligence Studies. And then we have a, an 18-month program that was designed principally to accommodate the needs of the armed forces. Uh, the Army, for example, has sent its Colonels and Lieutenant Colonels here to study in lieu of going to war college um, we uh, We have a, a one year executive master's program. We have eighteen graduate certificate programs, and we have the nation's first uh, graduate uh, first doctoral program in national security it 's a professional doctorate. Okay.
7: Well, and let's talk about funding for the Institute of World Politics. Um, How do you go about doing that?
2: Well, tuition pays about half our bills, and then we need to raise the rest from private donations. There are very few foundations uh, in in this country. There are something like 30,000-plus foundations with a a corpus of over a million dollars, and there are probably less than a dozen uh, of those foundations that support foreign policy and national security in a generic sense. Uh, There is a widespread assumption that the US government takes care of all these matters, but uh, you know, it doesn't. Uh, And it is important that there be private institutions to avoid the kind of groupthink that can happen within the government's own very worthy uh, educational institutions. Mm. Uh, there's the Foreign Service Institute at the Department of State, excellent. The problem is that if everybody goes there in the State Department and and nobody, there's no variegation from different points of view, then you can uh, start getting a, a, a conventional wisdom that may not necessarily be optimal. Um, the, the Army, for example, has is, 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 I believe, the most enlightened of the U.S. government institutions uh, in this, in the, on this score, because it does not want to create groupthink. It, it doesn't want to get stuck in going to war, for example, with the wrong doctrine. And it needs intellectual, t- it wants to have, it actively wants to have intellectual toughening of, of, of its leadership. Uh, who can, you know, who can think out of the box sometimes.
7: Now, if someone wanted to support the Institute, what would they need to do?
2: Well, we have our, our website, which is, uh, IWP, Institute of World Politics, IWP.edu for education. And we have a donation page there. And, uh you can always call me up or, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'd love to, I'd love to, I, my business, so much of my business is meeting and trying to inspire uh, potential supporters for the school.
7: Well, hopefully we can get more people in- interested and to get you some more funding. Really? So I want to thank John Lachowski, uh and uh, we're going to be right back with another guest from the World Institute of Politics. <laughs> All right, I'm standing here with Bashkar Sunkara. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. And um, tell me a little bit about the Jacobin magazine.
0: Well, Jacobin is the largest um, democratic socialist publication in the English language. We have around 50,000 subscribers, and we reach uh, close to 2 million people every, every month. Fantastic.
7: Now, I know some people don't understand the difference between democratic socialism and social democracy, so can you give us a little bit um, on the definition of that and what and the reason of your
0: choosing? Well, we have a common ancestor, social democracy and democratic socialists. The way the term has evolved has came to mean that social democrats want radical transformations but stop at the question of private ownership of the means of production, to use the oral arcane thing, where democratic socialists generally want to go beyond that. I mean, I, in a different context, might call myself a left social democrat and so on. So the terms are interchangeable. But the key thing is a common commitment to... Um, you know, forms of, of social reform. Mm-hmm. And I think that to make those reforms sustainable and to deepen them, we need to um, turn over production to uh, worker-owned firms, not necessarily state ownership, right. but independent worker-owned firms. Uh, most Social Democrats think that that's an idea that, that has, you know, came and went.
7: Got it. Are there any candidates on the Democratic side that you feel closely align with you or not?
0: Well, I think that on... The actual ideology of democratic socialism. Um, there's no real candidates in this this field. It's not. It's a question that's not particularly relevant. So the question of Medicare for all, for instance, is an important one. But if we don't have the power to win something like Medicare for all, which is established as right in most most countries around the world, you know, it's kind of ridiculous to be talking about worker, ownership, that means of production, these other more abstract questions. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, I support um, uh, Bernie Sanders as a candidate who uh, does advocate certain expansions of the, the welfare state, which I think will benefit ordinary people. But the vast majority of his supporters aren't socialist and don't think about that word, and it's not really relevant to their, their lives.
7: Okay. And to the average person, sometimes the idea of socialism just frightens them. So how do you go about talking to the average American who doesn't always have time to do the research and the history behind everything.
0: Well, I think that, um, to be honest, most people don't think one way or another about socialism because it's not particularly relevant to their lives. And if someone, when it comes to mind, they think of the Soviet Union, I would think, yes, that's a terrible example of a a government. The same way if you advocate a form of capitalism and someone thinks about Pinochet and and what happened in the 1970s in Chile, you'd be like, yes, that was terrible, but I'm advocating something different. Um, Often a lot of Americans think about Um, Nordic countries and I say yes there was a lot of positive reforms there but I want to go a little bit deeper but often it's about taking issues from a less abstract plane Mm -hmm. uh, than just talking about, you know, asking questions about what people uh, are actually experiencing day to day and in America there's a huge layer of the population that's been neglected by elites in the Democratic Party been neglected by university professors and talking heads and whatnot and cast aside. A lot of them are drawn rightly um, to uh, a candidate in Trump at least speaks in a little bit to, to what they're experiencing. I think he's has the wrong solutions. He's gonna end up immiserating more people uh, in, in many, many different ways. But I think that those are the people that, that we need to be reaching out to as well, not just liberals or, or others.
7: All right. One other question, how close is America to having a good balance between socialism and capitalism?
0: Well, I think that there's an immediate set of reforms that are broadly popular. I think um, if we win Medicare for all, if we expand a jobs program so everyone who wants to work and contributes to society, I think that's a huge um, start. and that'll mean a better world. It'll mean uh, less uh, um, more infants surviving their infancy. It'll mean more people living into older age. It'll mean people actually be able to retire with dignity at 65 after a life of hard work being able to enjoy retirement. And I think that's what most people want. Now if they want something beyond that, then I'll be there to advocate something beyond that. but I think, that that really that's that's what Americans are fighting for today.
7: Alright thank you very much for talking with us and um yes. Okay we have questions from students.
8: Hi. So I just want to ask you you insisted earlier and I agree with you you insisted that uh, should I take that you you insisted earlier that, uh, um, that citizens should hold their governments accountable no matter what form mm-hmm. of government they have. Absolutely agree 100%. The question is, once I've surrendered my natural right to private property, mm-hmm. how do I then manage to hold my government accountable? Thank you, sir.
0: Well, I think that you have your civic rights and your rights rooted in, in, in other, other forms. So one way to think about it is this. Uh, the average person, um, of course, we should separate personal property and private property. Your co- your home, your, your car, your toothbrush, you know, these are uh, are forms of personal uh, property. Private property, your right as a business owner, for example. Well, if that's an important right to expressing your political views, then how come that right is limited to merely 5-6% of the the population. So instead, what I'm proposing is expanding that right of ownership from 5-6% of the population to 60-70% of the population, people who work day-to-day. Of course, we'll still have to elect in a management. Of course, if you don't show up to work, you'll still have to get fired. Of course, inefficient firms will still have to fail so we can compete and innovate. But but I'm for expanding that right, not diminishing the right. Okay, so
8: the thing is, though, that I don't recognize the difference between personal property and private property. I believe that private property is whatever I earn. It's uh, it's an extension of my ownership of myself, so that I use my time, my talents, my capabilities, my effort to create new wealth. That wealth belongs to me as an extension of myself, and any uh, any abrogation of that right is an abrogation of my right of self-ownership, which is the most fundamental right there is. I am me, I own myself. And at the moment that anyone tries to take away anything that I own because I created it or I earned it, they've stolen from me and they've abrogated that right. So I don't recognize a difference between personal property and private property. Thank you, sir.
0: Well, yeah, I think the key is wealth is socially created. Um, and often when we think about the small uh, capitalist uh, the the person working with three four other people who puts in their own labor or their own of course They have a certain amount of right to that that property, but when we're talking about massive large uh, corporations uh, These are corporations where ordinary people at every level um, Actually do all the planning implementation design low, low, low management the middle management and so on uh, and I, I think that we could have a system which those people have equity in those companies and that equity means that they'll be more incentivized to produce and innovate. And there'll always be room for entrepreneurs in, the, in this sort of society. But I, I think that um, the permanent um, permanence of, um, of, of ownership just by virtue of, of planting a flag first in a, in a company uh, doesn't entitle someone to that amount of power o- over other people.
8: Okay, I would disagree about the foundation yep. of that, but I appreciate yep. your time, sir. Thank you, and
7: go ahead and state your name.
8: Marshall Wilson. I'm a student here at IWP. Great, thank Thank you.
7: you. And I believe we also have another student, too, and we're going to have you come on and go ahead and state your name and step right down here. There you go.
9: Hi, Sebastian Smiran. I'm a graduate student here. Thanks for showing up. We appreciate it. Um, I I was born and raised in Eastern Europe uh, under under Ceausescu, so I'm a little confused and would like to know how you would reconcile the idea of basically coercing people into working a certain amount of hours or limiting the number of hours with kind of the voluntary decision to work however many hours I can, if we're trying to go more towards a cooperation or are we trying to go more sort of like a collective coercion type of dynamic?
0: Well, when I was 13 years old, I really wanted a job because I was the youngest of five and all my siblings were were older, they were working, they had disposable income um you know my parents were immigrants we didn't have much money i could not work um, now that was obviously something i wanted to do but it was uh, a government legislation prevented child labor and prevented me from working until i turned uh, 15 in the same way i might want to work 11 12 13 hours if you do want to do that you're free to get a second a second job uh, but the, uh, but the idea of um, legislation limiting, for example, uh, the amount of hours someone could work at a, at a workplace is say you should be able to earn a decent living with 35, 40 hours. And in fact, that's a human right to earn a decent living for full-time work. And that allows our other time for family, for sports, for God, for whatever you want in your spare time. And we use collective action through unions and we use collective action through legislation to allow ourselves that, that bargain and that extra extra free time. But of course, you know, um, that is a form of coercion, but that's far different than the coercion of the Eastern Bloc, which is limiting what people thought, what they expressed and whatnot. And that's the type of coercion that is unacceptable and should be overturned. It was rightfully overturned by the agency of ordinary people uh, throughout the, the Eastern Bloc, in Romania, and elsewhere. Great, do time do time for a
9: follow-up. Or? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so it, it feels to me that, that if you're looking for a temporary, for, for, a, for a long-term, Um, uh, conclusion or solution to to this, so wouldn't it be that anything that kind of goes instinctually against human nature, which is to kind of have a consistent rule upon them, is going to at some point create again the same cycle of resistance, but just from the other side? So it doesn't Mm. seem to be a a long-term solution, it seems to always be a temporary cycle of actually creating a class struggle in itself.
0: Well, I mean, if I'm understanding your, your well, first of all, in my view, human nature it doesn't amount to much. I think human beings, at the very least, uh, know when we're being exploited, know we're being oppressed, and if we have resources to protect ourselves and our family, we'll we'll pursue those resources. I think that is instinctual. And beyond that, uh, I do think there's always going to be discontent, and there's always going to be politics. And in a social society, I imagine there will be anti-establishment feeling just like in our society there's often anti-establishment feeling Um, we saw just a big wave of anti-establishment feeling which I hugely disagreed with with the election of Donald Trump but we still see the institutions of our republic intact and I think in the same way in a social society you're going to still have the permanence of politics and dissent and that's a good thing that's what it means to be to be human Um, and we if we ever try to eliminate that instability then we're truly on the road to to surf them Great, appreciate it.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for yeah, those questions. Answering those questions. Go okay. ahead. Now we have Eric Blanc. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, how did you think the debate went?
4: Um, I thought the debate went well. We made our case strongly and um, I think pretty convincingly.
7: Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about your book, Red State Revolt. Um, tell me a little bit about that and um, your advocacy for teachers unions.
4: Yeah, I mean the United States right now is in the midst of the first strike wave in decades and I think it's really significant because uh, history has shown and recent experience has shown that the way that working people have get better living conditions and get more rights at work is not by uh, just pleading with politicians or hoping that management does the right thing but by withholding their labor and fighting back. And so that's what we've seen all across these red states um, that teachers have struck and won and made huge gains not just for themselves but for their students.
7: Um, let's talk a little bit about um, what happened in Santa Clarita yesterday. We had another shooting at a school. Um, so talk a little bit about things like that under, what what can what can be um, helped where that doesn't happen? Where, the, where workers unions, will that help that?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a few different things going on there. One is that the epidemic of uh, mass shootings we've seen in the United States are, in large part, due uh, both to the influence of the NRA over the political process and big business, and then also just the really uh, deterioration of mental health services uh, in our country due to um, the inefficiencies of a private health industry. And so if we're going to talk about preventing these types of tragedies, it's really going to require both rolling back the power of the NRA and uh, bringing something like Medicare for all to the United States so that people who um, really need mental health treatment can get that before something like this happens.
7: Do you think teachers need to be taught how to handle situations like that more?
4: Um, I think that actually there's quite a lot of um, treatment right now for if you're a teacher talking about how to deal with mass shootings and so the crucial question is how do we prevent these uh, from arising in the first place.
7: All right, so um, you are a member of the Democratic Socialist of America and I've been talking a little bit about the differences between um, what a democratic socialism is and what social democracy is. Could you tell me your definition and where you lean?
4: Yeah, I think that there's a good amount of overlap between social democracy and democratic socialism. Um, social democracy, as we've seen it, been practiced, means that really basic human needs like the right to health care, education, sometimes housing are provided uh, publicly and aren't dependent on the market or private um, industry. So these are gains that were won by workers and socialists against capitalists and against the capitalist system. But nevertheless, social democracy existed within the confines still of the private ownership of big business. So what that meant was that the um, gains that they made were unstable, and as we've seen over the last decades, a lot of the gains that were won in social democratic countries were rolled back. So what democratic socialism would mean would be to build off of those gains um, that were made as far as decommodifying huge parts of the economy, building off of democratic institutions and rights, you know, we're in favor of universal suffrage or in favor of uh, basic political liberties, but moving beyond the uh, dictatorship of capital over the vast majority of uh, the resources and the economic life of our country. So what democratic socialism means is sort of expanding on the logic of social democracy to uh, put the basically economic sphere under the public and democratic control of the majority.
7: Uh, so do you see socialism and um, capitalism as a checks and balances kind of thing? Like, a, How do you see America in the future, your idealistic America?
4: I think that the first step Um, you know, we're not near a socialist transformation in the United States right now. I think the first step that we need to see uh, would be something like passing Medicare for all, getting rid of the private insurance companies across the United States. If we're able to show that, in fact, uh, we'd be able to provide better and cheaper health care through public as opposed to private provisioning, it's that type of logic that will really expand into other spheres too, because like if we can do that for healthcare, why shouldn't we do that for how we deal with energy production? Why shouldn't we do that for transport? So the logic, the, well, education in some ways we already have. Um, and so I think that in fact, people look at education and see, well, this is a, something that is seen as a right. Um, I think that's the basic goal that we have for more and more spheres of society. The way that people look at public education now where anybody, you know, still the assumption is that if you uh, are in the United States and you're a child, you're going to have at least through high school um, education provided for you. But we believe that that should be the case for housing. We believe that should be the case for education. Other countries have done that. So I think that that's both uh, the short term and the strategic orientation because insofar as you're able to give people confidence that the public as opposed to private uh, interest can provide for the human and majority uh, better than uh, private profit, then that's going to point us in the direction of eventually breaking the stranglehold of big business over uh, the economy.
7: I know a lot of people, when they t- think about socialism, they worry about You know, individualism. So, what would you say to people about that, thinking that my individualism is going to be lost if I'm in a socialistic society?
4: Yeah, our goal is uh, the opposite of what is often attributed to us, you know, the, the slander against socialists as you want to bring us to totalitarian Russia. Um, And in fact, that's not, as a democratic socialist at all, the type of society we aspire to in which people are told what to think or told what to do. Um, In fact, the reason we're socialists is precisely the opposite, is that we want to expand people's individual uh, choices and their ability to have actual freedom as opposed to just paper freedom. Because in the United States right now, and like most capitalist countries, you know, you have the right in theory to do a lot of things, but the material conditions and the economic burdens make it so a lot of these rights aren't practicable, right? So you have the right, for instance, to uh, in theory you could go travel the world you could do all sorts of things you could um, you could become a capitalist yourself you could become a billionaire but if you look at the actual ability for most people to do that the reality is when you're working two or three jobs the jobs just aren't there and the opportunities aren't there to make it so that you have that time or you have that ability to rise up so what we think that is by taking out this private ownership um, from a small minority of people, you'd actually be able to create the political and economic conditions through which people could actually have choices and have the material economic power through which they could leave a bad job and get a better job, or through which they could, together with uh, a group of their friends and co-workers, found a cooperative that could actually function. You don't have that power for the vast majority of people in the United States right now. Got
7: it. All right, Eric, thank you so much for answering our questions. I'll see if we have any students. Oh, we do have some student questions, so go ahead. I must to Marshall. And go ahead and stand right in yes, here. So there
8: you. we go. Thank you. My name is Marshall Wilson. I'm a student here at IWP, and I really appreciate you coming. So uh, you're the author of Red State Revolt. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Could you please just expound for me for a moment on the ideological roots of the, the recent spate of teacher strikes and perhaps the involvement of the National Socialist in that, or the Democratic Socialist, please. Thank you.
4: Um, well, the roots of the strikes are in... Go ahead, take your mic. Go ahead, yeah. Uh, The roots of the strikes are in uh, decades of bipartisan attacks on public education. You've seen both the Republican and Democratic parties imposing uh, privatization, making it really difficult for teachers even to do their job by imposing over testing and it's these basic conditions that have given rise to a tremendous amount of anger because as uh, as a former teacher and as anybody teacher can attest in the united states right now it's very difficult to actually do your job of teaching students when you don't have the funds when you have massive class sizes up upwards of 40 people so these are the conditions that led to the strikes and has been in the case uh, throughout u.s history um, radicals and socialists did play a role in the labor movement um, By no means were they the only people involved, and uh, most teachers certainly weren't radicals or socialists. But I think that the case is clear that historically, and in a recent period, people understand that there is a conflict of interest between um, the small minority of business owners that control our society and the vast majority of working people. People understand that contradiction tend to be really good union activists, and we have seen that recently as well. Thank you very much.
7: Thank Thank you, and now we're going to have another guest with us, go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> thank you, but I have to tell you, I feel at home, it's my map room Oh, it's your map room <laughs> We're actually in, because you do, you you um, are a teacher here So we have yeah. Merrick, I hope I say your name properly I Go know. ahead and stand right However,
6: here I'm not a Trotskyite with the
7: teachers you? Okay, we so teachers. No worries, go ahead and step right here right. There you go, perfect, okay. thank you so much Okay, and I'm going to say your name hopefully correct Merrick Kadakovich. Kodakevich. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Yes. Thank you. next to an H. Got it. Okay. W is
6: pronounced like a V. CZ is pronounced, pronounced like CH.
7: Kodakevich. Kodakevich. Perfect. Awesome. Great. There I'm glad you. I got it. Music. Music. Well, you are very passionate about this subject, um, and you are a teacher here at the Institute of World Politics. So remind us the importance of understanding history and uh, the socialistic societies and the potential of totalitarianism.
6: I shall go Hollywood on you, if I may. Do you remember the cartoon Lion King? Yes, I do. Well, the lion cub told his tutor that the past didn't matter. So the tutor smacked him. And the lion cub was very baffled. Mm -hmm. Next time the lion cub said something special Mm -hmm. and the tutor raised his hand, the lion cub recoiled because he knew what was coming.
3: Mm
6: -hmm. And the tutor, if I recall correctly, remarked, oh, you've learned from the past. Mm Very
7: good, thank you very much. Now, as I mentioned, you are um, a, s- a teacher here. Tell me some of the favorite um, subjects, uh, the subject that you're teaching and um, the reaction of your students.
6: Well, I get paid for my hobby. Got it. And the students are divided into those who like to read and can be persuaded to read and those who hate me because I make them read. <laughs> I teach uh, geography and strategy. I teach um, uh, contemporary politics and uh, diplomacy, post-Soviet politics and foreign policy in Russia, Mm -hmm. and mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. Plus I also offer directed studies by invitation only. Mm -hmm. So for example, you can learn comparative civilizations with me. Okay. Polyandry in Tibet. Oh
7: my goodness!
6: <laughs> among comparative civilizations, I teach uh, the history uh, of conspiracy theory and practice okay. for the paranoid. I teach Western civiliz- civilization and its intellectual defenders, more or less from Edmund Burke. So I pick up after Aristotle, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and Saint Augustine.
7: Okay, when you're teaching your students, um, when, when when do you say that aha moment when they start getting everything uh, in your class?
6: Mm, I don't approach my students collectively. Okay. I can see which ones are superior, which ones get excited, so I scrutinize them, and I perk up whenever I see that they can string the massive amount of facts that we try to impart to them together. They find analogies, and they start understanding processes. We are a graduate school. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, naturally, we have a remedial situation because of the uh, tragic condition of America's educational system, which includes having to have remedial classes in writing. But otherwise, any student who cares tends to do well. Those who are here to get their diploma only go through the motions. Uh, I pity. I'm always ready to help, but you can only help those who want to help themselves.
7: Got it. Now, um, do you think there can ever be a balance between capitalism and socialism, like your idealistic idea of America, you love America?
6: Okay, first, do I love America? Absolutely. Good. <laughs> America saved my life, essentially. Uh, and therefore, I do not want to see any socialism here. What I want to see here is Christian charity and love towards those who are less fortunate. I would like to see the restoration of the old British uh, attitude, my station and its duties. I would like to see people who are taught like I was at home God blessed us more than others, therefore we have an obligation to help those who are not as fortunate as we are. And mind you, we lived in slums. The Nazis and communists had confiscated everything.
7: It was terrifying, I'm sure.
6: No, because a child doesn't know any better. (laughs) So... For me, it was actually funny. Everything is funny <laughs> until this very day.
7: <laughs> well, thank you so I very much. Thank God. It's laughter. I understand. <laughs> yeah. I think it's everyone's coping mechanism. Hoping. Thank you so very much, um, Dr. Way,
6: not everyone. Uh, first thing God does when he wants to punish you is rob you of your sense of humor. Oh, goodness. Well, I think go- it's political correctness
7: oh goodness, <laughs> got it. well, thank you so very much. Yes, I appreciate we have that. Have <laughs> and will we write, oh, we have another. we have another uh, guest. <laughs> I'm not mean
5: <laughs>
7: You're the last one, yes, go ahead and stand right in here. there we go. I have Dr., Uh, excuse me, uh, Radosh, Dr., Uh, I want to say doctor, (laughs) Mr. Ronald Radosh, Dr. Radosh, and um, you've experienced a lot in uh, your life, and so tell me a little bit about your um, path to political philosophy.
5: Yes, uh, I was a precocious young socialist and essentially young communist in high school because, as I said during the talk, I was propagandized in a private school at which in New York in the 1950s that all the teachers were communists, mm-hmm. actual communist party members. And the history teacher in particular told us Marxism was a science and dialectical materialism explained everything. And therefore, uh, you know, he was an authority figure, a very good teacher, very commanding, I agreed with him. Mm-hmm. And the other person he converted, unfortunately, who still believes all this, was Angela Davis, the African-American former communist leader and extreme radical, uh, as she is today. So that's where I learned it. Fortunately, it lasted by me through two semesters of college and then I dropped it all. So well, well, it wasn't a long. Uh, well, talk
0: you know, about the moment when you, like you dropped.
5: Yes, I started reading anti-communist literature. Okay. And uh an official of the Communist Party came through and he saw it in my, living room he saw the books he said you are not you're forbidden to read these mm. i said why i can read anything i want he said no you can't and he ripped out the international communist newspaper called for a living peace for a people's democracy he said this is what you should read mm. so i said this is i'm through <laughs> that did it
7: got it yeah. for free speech and, and individualism yeah. Yeah. i totally right. understand so um how do you think this debate went
5: i thought it was a lot of fun it went very well i don't know uh, what's small audience, I don't know what the people watching or will watch it, uh, what they'll conclude, which side they'll come out with, and what they'll think, there's no, there's no way. I thought we were convincing, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly the last thing I threw out was uh, after uh, Bhaskar Sankara spoke, uh, everything he said is vitiated by his endorsement in his book of Jeremy Corbyn as the future forward for a socialist movement in England, and it should be in the US. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeremy Corbyn is a lifelong Stalinist, supporter of every anti-American movement and cause today, from Hezbollah to Hamas. Uh, Beforehand, the Soviet Union. He was a rank, if he wasn't a member of the party in Britain, he was a dues chiseler. His chief advisor now was a leader of the British Communist Party, Mm -hmm. and his whole record is anything but a democratic socialist, regardless of what he calls himself. Uh, and, you know, my opposition supports him as the model. Well, that's not democratic socialism. Mm. Uh, if you're a democratic socialist, the last person you would support is a Jeremy Corbyn.
7: Well, talk about um, people who don't always have the time to read and to right. uh, find out all the information that you do or someone else. Yeah. What would you encourage them to do to? the thing is
5: if they don't, we have a, somebody wrote a book, a conservative wrote a book called The Stupidest Generation I can't think of his name now, it's a good title, because uh, you have to read something. Now the head, the woman who head of Democratic Socialist of America, I read a quote by our, a news report that she said, I might be the only person in this organization, bear in mind they have 55,000 now, so it's not totally accurate, she said, who has read the writings of Michael Harrington who founded the organization. Now that's something to say. All the, and you know, when Saqqara came out with his book, the Socialist Manifesto, I thought it would be a bestseller just because if even three quarters of those members bought his book, obviously a bomb, nobody in that organization reads. And the the key example, of course, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who constantly makes illiterate and stupid statements because she doesn't know anything, mm-hmm. yet she goes around Bernie Sanders as a, quote, democratic socialist. Well. Somebody should tell her you're not an advertisement for democratic socialism, because as soon as you're a regular person, you hear her talk, you say, Who believes this stuff? Mm -hmm. And she said she was campaigning for left wing candidates. She won in a particular district of Queens and the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And that's a unique district, as every congressional district is. And the other Democrat running, who was in office for years, was actually a progressive, but he didn't campaign at all. He said, I'm not going to bother campaigning. So he lost. They said he doesn't care about us. It's a local issue. But she went around with Bernie through the Midwest, where there were candidates like her running in primaries of the Democratic Party. And she said, when she went to Kansas, I watched the speech on C-SPAN. She said, my message in Bronx is the same as my message here. People know it's true in the Bronx and they know it's true in Kansas and that's why whoever she was supporting will win. Of course, he came out last, he was totally crushed. Right. Every candidate she endorsed lost wow. their primary vote. That doesn't tell her anything, um, you know, so.
7: And what, is th- what do you think the, is the draw right now to socialism um, with the younger generation?
5: Ecology, because it is a serious issue, and of course their answer for it, which my opposition endorsed, the Green New Deal is a very dangerous extremist proposal that won't work, that doesn't take complicated things into question. Mm -hmm. And you know, people who are young want total answers. If we do this, all the problems are solved. And they believe the Green New Deal is the only thing that sets the path forward. Mm -hmm. Well, you know they've lost the rest of the country if they say that they're young they Bernie's crowd. look at the crowds. they're all young, maybe a few older socialists from the older generation, okay. my age and younger or even older uh so these people uh the young people they're the base, they come out for the rallies, but they're not enough of them to win let Bernie win something win the primaries. I'm not even sure, even though everyone says Warren is a shoo-in now, I'm not, not even sure that she can win. She says I'm a capitalist, I'm not a socialist. That's window dressing. She says the same thing as he does. She makes extreme, unworkable proposals. And I noticed when she re- recently went to the Midwest, she didn't mention Medicare for All, which she's endorsed. She didn't say a word about it because she knows if she said that, she'd be finished there. Mm. So she's smart, she knows when to say it, she's for it, when not to say it. Now, that's, she's not honest. I mean, you know, she—if uh, she got the candidacy, she'd be trounced when the election was held, and Republicans would make mincemeat out of her because they go through everything she supported and show her twists and turns. She'd be finished. Oh so.
7: Got it. Thank you so much, no, Dr. Reddish. We Pleasure really appreciate talking you, you um, talking to us and for taking time out for Great. answering all the questions and Great. things. Thank, thank you, you very so much. very much. Okay, All right, And I'm Carmen Tyler. And um, stay tuned. Uh, we'll be right back. And remember, uh, around at 1230, we'll be talking to Michael Walsh, who is going to talk about his experience with uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, we'll be right back um, a little bit later. And um, hopefully you'll stay tuned for that, too.